in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Welcome to Capital City Church in the park. That kind of has a nice ring to it. We've never called it that before, but maybe we'll stick with that. Um, glad to have you guys here. A little bit different today. We'll do a shorter sermon, and then uh, the Logies are going to send us off into discussion groups. So I wanted to open by telling you a story I heard a few years ago. I thought it was just so hilarious. So there's a guy who discovered that the material that goes into our nickels, you know, like the coins that are worth five cents, um, he discovered that the material in nickels, it's actually mostly copper and then covered in nickel, uh, is worth more than five cents. And so what he did is he did everything he could to get as many nickels as humanly possible. He contracted with the Federal Reserve, with banks, with collectors. He wasn't looking for special ones or old ones or fancy ones, just as many nickels as he could possibly get. And he already had some money. So he was able to get uh, 40 million nickels, which if you do the math, is $2 million worth of nickels. Now, uh, it's not exactly legal to melt down uh, American currency, but he didn't need to plan on doing that. He knew that there were other people who were probably willing to take that risk. But he did the math and figured out that the material in nickels is actually worth 36% more than a nickel is worth. So he basically was acquiring vast amounts of these metal goods. And he did everything he could to get as much, as many nickels as possible. And then he knew that he would be able to sell them to someone who would, who would be willing to take the risk to sort of melt them down. I'm not advocating that this is a wise decision, but it was really uh, interesting. And uh, I just thought, man, this reminds me of the biblical parallel. I hear this guy finds a treasure. I mean, in one day he can find all of these nickels and sell them for a 36% profit. The best investors in the world, the Warren Buffett types, are lucky if they can get 15 or 16% per year. And this guy figured out a way to get 36 overnight. So he dropped everything, went for it, and then, uh, you know, never really told how the story ended because he didn't want to go to prison. But I imagine he found a way to sell all these nickels to someone who then turned them into, you know, metals to sell. Uh, and this, this reminds me of a story that Jesus tells. Uh, he says, um, let's see here. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So presumably what this story is about is that somebody was working in a field that was owned by somebody else. And then he was digging or doing something in the field and came upon this buried cache of gold or treasure, or silver, or whatever it might have been. And actually, this isn't just a weird far-fetched parable. In the ancient world, there were not banks. So almost every property buried all of their accumulated wealth in the form of precious metals on their property somewhere. And so it wasn't like common, but it was, it was not unheard of to run into a cache of buried money, buried treasure. Uh, so often people would bury it in a secret place where they wouldn't, they wouldn't let anyone know where it was, maybe just one child or something. But if a, a, an invading army came into town or if you fell suddenly ill, which happened a lot in the ancient world, a lot of people ended up dying without anyone else to know where this buried cache of money was. And so still today there are people looking for these old you know, boxes of buried goods and, and money from the ancient world. And so it, it, it did happen sometimes that people would run into this money and then they had to figure out, you know, you can't just pick up 500 or 1,000 pounds of precious metals and carry them off while everyone else is looking. So you had to find a way to keep it concealed and then acquire that land or come back at night or somehow find a way that you could get there to get that treasure. And so this story is of this man finding this treasure and then kind of keeping it hidden and doing everything he could, selling everything he had, focusing 
completely on getting that field so that he could then dig out this treasure. This uh, reminds me, I don't know if you've heard this story. Uh, there was a woman in Israel in 2009 who was given a mattress as a gift. Does anyone know this story? Can you tell already where I'm going to go with this? Anyone? Maybe you'll, you'll remember it as I, as I tell it. So there was a, an old lady in Israel. She was in her 70s or 80s, and she had been using the same mattress for decades. I, I think it's 30 or 40 years she'd been using the same mattress. You know, it was just gross, and the springs were poking out of it. And her daughter kept saying, hey, you know, you've got to get a new mattress. This is inappropriate for, you know, you, you have you know, some funds, and, you know, you're an older woman now. Like, get a good mattress. And, and the, the sort of the grandma was always like, oh, no, you know, it's just fine. I, I want to stay with, with my mattress. So one day when the old lady was out, the daughter kind of secretly called in, you know, some mattress company to deliver a new mattress and then take her old one to the dump. And uh, anyone know this story? Anyone? Oh, this is great. When the older lady got home, she just went white as a ghost because she said, I have been storing all of our extra money in that mattress for 40 years. So there's more than a million dollars in cash hidden in this ancient mattress. This is a real story. You Google it later. It's from 2009. It's, it was like a worldwide like viral story for a few days when I was uh, in college. Um, and so not only they called the dump and everyone, like all the dump people in Israel, Israel's basically just like a big city, you know, so everyone like was like on the, on all the, the two dumps in the whole country were like on it trying to figure out, you know, what happened to this mattress. All of the family members were out there and then it hit the press and soon enough, tons of regular people just started storming the dump at night and like trying to find this mattress filled with treasure. Um, and that's, that is what it's like in the modern day, right? That's what the proper response is to buried treasure. Everyone stops everything they're doing. The masses come in and try to figure out where is this treasure? How can I get it? And so the man in the biblical story, in his joy, it says he sold everything so that he could buy the field. He was willing to part with everything because of the overflowing reward he would have when he bought the field and then he was able to dig out the treasure. And this ought to be our posture in seeking the kingdom of God. By the way, the, they never found the mattress with all the money. I, maybe there's a follow-up to that story, but yeah, she had a good attitude about it. She's like, oh, well, you know, I think when she started saving the money, it was like a war-torn time. And then by the time she was elderly, like Israel was doing just fine. So she's like, oh, I'm still taken care of. I'll be okay. Um, but still to this day, they've never found that money. Or maybe someone found it and never told. Who knows? Uh, but this ought to be, this, this everyone dropping everything and running after the treasure ought to be our posture in seeking the kingdom of God. You know, you don't seek Jesus because your parents told you to, in case they did. Uh, you don't do it because it's the right thing to do, although it is, or because it's honorable. The Bible boldly claims that you seek him and his kingdom out of self-interest. This is crazy to us modern people that the Bible will boldly say unabashedly, pursue God, not only because it's right, but because it makes you fulfilled. It makes you happy, which sounds very strange to our modern ear. Um, what's funny is I, I don't actually quote, uh, a, there's a certain pastor named John Piper who I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not like some disciple of him, but he's actually come up twice in my entire life of preaching and it's been two weeks in a row. I'm not reading him or anything, but somehow he's there in the subconscious. But he has a book, and it is, it is worth reading at some point. It's called Desiring God. And he basically, the one thing I really remember from it is that he t takes an ax to this modern idea that there is no selfless good deed, right? Like, that if you do something good, 
but like for the poor or whoever, but that makes you feel good, then it's not really a good deed. Like true good deeds are ones that you don't feel good about. He takes an ax to that and says that's completely unbiblical. That came in through the philosophers and through Immanuel Kant and others. The Bible says do good to those who are suffering, not only because it's right, but because you know what? You're going to be happy too. It'll make you feel good because I've made humans. God has made humans to feel good after doing good things like that. So anyway, this book, Desiring God, kind of uh, again, I'm not like some pipe writer or anything. I think there are some problems there, although he's been helpful as well. But he really uh, opened that whole door to me to realize that the Bible unabashedly says, follow me because it will make you happy, uh, which is, sounds strange to our ear. Uh, there will be a cost of discipleship, no doubt. The man had to sell everything he had in order to buy that field. And we are required much the same. We have to give up all that we have. We have to give up our life. And because, but we do this because we're seeking the greater treasure that we have found in Christ. We do it not only just for the other reasons, maybe other people in our life have encouraged us to, maybe it's the right thing, the honorable thing uh, at this time, but we do it also, we follow Jesus for our own self-interest. And that's how he's made it, that we are delighted when we follow him. Uh, seek the kingdom of God like those people going after the mattress. Um, I just, I can't imagine all of Israel descending on these dumps looking for this million dollar mattress. Um, but yeah, so seek the kingdom of God like people going after a buried treasure. Go get it, sell everything, you know, dig it up, mine it out, hold on to it, do anything and don't let it go. This is, this is what it means. This is our posture as we pursue Jesus. There's a similar story just a few verses away uh, in Luke 13, or Matthew 13. A uh, similar story about yeast. Um, I, actually, I thought it was yeast. Apparently, it's about sourdough, which is a different thing. So all of you bakers can figure out where I'm saying the words wrong here. So uh, a few verses later, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I love this, this word, hid, this, that this woman hid in three measures of flour. It's like a straight-up Greek idiom. It means she stirred it in. She mixed it in. She didn't, like, actually hide it inside the flour. It's just their idiom for stirring it in until it was all leavened. And forever, I thought that this was yeast, but apparently it's just like a, it's like a sourdough starter, right? Like, if you leave dough out for however long, it just catches the yeast or the bacteria, whatever it is from the air, and then it becomes living dough, right? Like living bread. It has a culture in it. And then they'll just take a little corner off it and leave it aside, make the bread. And the next time it's time to make bread, they'll take that one that's living, the one that's caught the, the germ, so to speak, and just put that in. And this is uh, three measures of flour. It's enough to feed, feed hundreds of people. So all you have to do, you know, is put this little bit of living dough in, essentially non-living dough, and the whole thing overnight transforms into having this living culture in it. And so... That's, that's the idea that Jesus is painting here, that the smallest little bit of leaven can transform enough food for hundreds and hundreds of people just in one night. So just a little bit of living dough can make all of this dead dough alive in no time. And that's a vision for what it means to follow Jesus in our city. So Capital City, we, we talked about this a lot when we planted, that we believe in uh, transformation. So we're a transformative church. Uh, some people may be called to the life of a hermit. You're not saying that's wrong in all cases. Some people may be called to separate or draw apart or, or put up walls between them and the world, but that is not our calling as Capital City Church. We are called to be leaven in the entire measure of flour. So God puts us here in a, in a sense to infect or to be this germ that, uh, it, that sort of catches on the rest of the world. We believe the kingdom of God transforms, and to transform it, we're not to be hidden off and to and it, it sort of walled off in a corner. We're not supposed to be hemmed in in closed communities. 
Instead, we're supposed to be mixed into the wider group, stirred into the wider group, or as the Greek has it, uh, hidden in, in the dough. And this can get uncomfortable sometimes. Being a, a crazy sort of minority, in, in a way, can be, it, you know, as we become a more and more secular nation, we can feel more like that tiny little bit of leaven in a whole bunch of non-living dough. And that can be a bit uncomfortable, but it's good and it's right, and it's what living dough is meant to do to dead dough. You know, that, that the bread of life in it breathes life into the whole batch, and that is our role as people in the kingdom of God. So, so you can just, if anyone asks you what this sermon is about later, you could say that, that we learned that the kingdom of God is like a germ, uh, and then that, that'll, be, that'll be enough for the, the message. Uh, maybe more like a probiotic. Um, so a few fishermen went out with this message. A few women returned from the empty tomb. A few missionaries went out, a few churches, but with that, God reached the whole world. An oak tree might seem massive and impressive. Any tree people? Do we have any oak trees around? I, I wanted to point at one, but it, I don't see any. Anyway, an oak tree might be massive, but it starts with just an acorn, which, let's be honest, it's like squirrel food, right? So this little, like, this little acorn produces a massive oak, but it starts with that acorn dying in the ground, right? Unless that seed dies in the ground, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't come to life in that, in that, that new phase again. So don't despise the day of humble beginnings. God has done greater things with an acorn than have entire en uh, empires with their armies. God has taken a speck of leaven infested with the living culture of God and then spread that culture to entire societies. In a final example, Jesus kind of puts these in threes. Uh, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, this is a really confusing parable, actually, in that uh, it works for the point that he's making, but a lot of it's not actually true. Uh, you can just Google it later. The mustard seed, a lot of it, a lot of people considered it a weed. So then there's this huge debate as to, like, did Jesus understand, you know, gardening, or was he doing this to kind of mess with people, right? He's, he's calling, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is a weed. People did not want it in their gardens. They did not want it in their fields. Uh, but, it, you know, something you can't keep out. Nor is it the smallest seed. Not that Jesus is trying to make some scientifically provable fact. He's just saying it's a very tiny seed. It's not the smallest seed, but it's a very tiny seed. And then it grows up into a quite a large brush or sort of smaller tree. Um, in that area, they didn't have big trees like we do. So even a large bush kind of qualified as a tree to them. So anyway, that's a whole uh, confusing rabbit hole you don't need to go down. Um, but the idea was that such a tiny seed produced this large shrub or, or small tree um, that everybody knew and everyone knew what he would be talking about. And once it flourished, it gave life to many. There are many birds that would come and make nests in its branches. Um, and it was a beautiful sight, even though some considered it a weed. And the kingdom of God is like this. It starts as a small seed and then it flourishes and gives life to those within and also is a blessing to those around it, like the birds that made nests in its branches. So to follow Christ, it's not a private and secluded affair. Following Christ means bringing about his kingdom. It will bless the church, but it also blesses the wider world. And the church has really failed in this, I think, in, in, in our era, in our generation. But the world ought to come from far and wide and see both the shade and the light that the church offers and 
find comfort there and, and make nests in its branches uh, and be glad that the kingdom of God is, is following in that stead. And that's something that we're called to do. What the world thought in the early church, what the world thought was a weed, soon became a blessing. And the kingdom of God did grow like a weed. Uh, it was just a seed, it was just an acorn, so to speak, but it went on to become a mighty and fixed oak. Today, Christianity is by far the largest religion in the world. Uh, and though the West here, and we can feel it in our own city, though we're having kind of a down moment, uh, Latin America, Africa, Asia are exploding in Christian growth, which is so exciting that in the future, I think I, I may have said this before, that our grandchildren will be quoting African and Chinese theologians and pastors, just like maybe they quote our theologians and pastors now. Those tables will turn in the future, the center of, uh, of leadership in Christianity will be in Africa, maybe even within our lifetime. Um, so because these continents were walking, they were digging, they were working, so to speak, they ran into buried treasure. And Latin America, Africa, Asia, they're buying the field right now to pursue that treasure with everything they have. Um, China, I think, had uh, only a few hundred believers in the 1930s, 1940s. And today it has more Christians than the United States. Now, as, as a percentage, it's not quite re caught up to us yet, but it has more Christians than we do in our country, which I think is incredible. So how do you buy the field? How do you, how do you sell everything and buy the field? These are three simple things uh, just to refocus on every week, every day. You buy the field by reading scripture and trying to get to know the God of the Bible. Pray every day as if God hears you and knows you because he does. It's so funny. Here we, we say what we believe about scripture and what we believe about God, but so often we don't read it and we don't pray. And it's like, well, if we really believe what we believe about scripture and God, then we, we must read it and pray. This is like, if it's truly living and God hears our prayers, how crazy would it be to spend our life not investing our time in those things? So read scripture, pray every day, and sit alone with God and talk to him. So there's prayer and then there's that sort of meditation that comes with it. Sit alone with God and talk to him. When you found that treasure, go get it. Sell everything you have, don't make excuses, dig it up, mine it out, hold on to it, treasure it, and don't let it go. Let the germ of the kingdom of God permeate your whole being and then let it give life to all the dead dough around. Let me pray and then I'll invite either Amanda or both, you know, Logie, Logies up. Uh, Siri calls them the loges whenever I ask for directions or anything. Yeah, it's funny. All right, uh, let me pray. Um, Lord, we, we thank you so much for, for uh, being this mustard seed that grows into such a, such a large and life-giving thing. We thank you for being this germ that has, has caught in us, Lord, that we were this dough, but that you gave us life. You breathed life into us that we might be living bread, Lord, and you gave us your living water. We pray that we would follow you, that we would, uh, we would not hold back, that when we find that treasure, that we would sell everything, that we would not make excuses, that we would do anything to reach you, um, to be with you, to read your scriptures, to pray, and to sit with you, Lord. And we pray that we would be uh, this life-giving uh, germ this sort of uh, that we would be able to pass on this life to to those around us Lord we pray that we would be uh, a blessing that we would give uh, shade and also light uh, to the nations around that they might uh, be blessed as well by your kingdom uh, we pray this in Jesus name amen
This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.